Hello and welcome to the Economics of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Don Killingbeck, and I'm joined today by Dr. Ben Jenkins. Very excited to have him on the show. Dr. Jenkins, I know you, we go back a, a ways, but if you could tell us a little bit about yourself for our listening audience. Yeah, well, Don, it's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, so I am an educator, very similar to yourself. Spent the time, obviously, in K-12 schooling. Uh, started my career back in 1997 as a classroom teacher. Uh, moved into administrative roles, uh, serving in various uh, positions, principal, superintendent, whatnot. Mostly in private and charter schools uh, before moving to a statewide position overseeing school performance accountability at uh, the Governor John Angler Center for Charter Schools. Uh, now the associate, uh, an associate professor and the chairperson for the Department of Ed Leadership at Central Michigan University. Uh, and this is my ninth year as a professor. Well, fantastic, Dr. Jenkins. You obviously have a wealth of experience that you're bringing to the conversation today from you know charter school to college professor to department chair. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of knowledge. So can you tell us a little bit about in what ways are K-12 schools like a business? What ways do they operate like a business? Yeah, that's a great question, especially as we think about uh, you know the dynamic elements of schooling today and as we have different uh, formats of, of school structure that we work on. Uh, a lot of it, though, I think goes back to um, you know understanding the financial implications of schooling, uh, which is really at the you know, the heart of the debate around charter schools uh, and schools of choice. So in Michigan, it started back, you know, really have to go to, you know, back to 1993 uh, when we're looking at how schools were financially structured back then in terms of, you know, local tax base, right? So the majority of the, the funding uh, came from a local property taxes, about 70%. And in 1993, uh, with Proposal A, that transferred the funding from a local scenario uh, to a statewide. So obviously, property tax is still an element, but it's a much smaller element of, of the actual base of, of funding. A lot of it comes from uh, you know sales tax and other other general taxes. And so with that, um, you know, paved the way for uh, schools to now be funded not necessarily by the local. Uh, communities in which they serve, but per student. And so in, in a lot of cases, you know, the money follows the student. And so with that, we now have the ability for schools to um, be open to competition. Uh, so with choice comes competition. So with schools of choice, with charter schools, uh, some states, they have vouchers here. We don't have that in, in Michigan. Um, but that provides kind of a unique dynamic in thinking of it like a business, because now very similar to a not-for-profit where we have to think about where the funding comes from. In this case, it comes from the student. Um, and it, as a, you know, a state or a public institution, right? Education is a, is a public good. Uh, we also have the dynamic now where with the competition, you're now trying to figure out how do we make sure that we get enough students uh, to fund the program that we want to fund. And so we have to think about things such as marketing, uh, efficiencies and where we spend our money. We have to think about customer service, right? Uh, we don't like to think about students as customers or parents as customers, but in many cases, that's how we we operate in the sense of it like a, like a business, like you said, uh, because now we have to think about those same dynamics that a lot of businesses have to think about. 
Uh, we have to think about salaries and benefits, facilities, operations, curriculum technology, uh, busing, food service, et cetera. All that has to be managed. And you know, we don't have unlimited resources. So we have to think about how do we meet our mission and how do we make sure that those, those dollars we receive are going towards the mission of that program. There's obviously the ways we're like businesses. What ways do you feel like schools, K-12 public schools, charters, they're not like business? Well, that's easy because that goes back to, again, why we exist. And that's the mission-driven approach, not the financial-driven approach. And so although we have to you know, manage the funds and manage the operations of the organization, just like any other business would, uh, to be efficient and effective, the reason why we exist is very different. And again, that's the mission of the organization, which is to serve kids and to make sure that all kids are getting uh, a high quality education, uh, that there's equity across our, our our districts, right? So, you know, whether it's from Hemlock to Saginaw to Lansing, Detroit, that we make sure that we provide uh, appropriate education for all students uh, in that uh, we really focus on not that profit motive, uh, but on making sure that we're truly serving, like I mentioned before, that, that public good of, of why we exist. So anecdotally, what do you think is the impact of school choice on student learning and achievement and overall school satisfaction? You know, we'll, and I'll take, you know, maybe you have a research-based answer. Maybe you'll be able to say, hey, the research says, and quote somebody, that'd be great. But, you know, just from your own heart, your own thoughts, and if you have research, that would be even better. What do you think is the impact of school of choice on student learning and achievement? Yeah, well, this is obviously an area that's been heavily researched. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of clear outcomes. Um, the world of school choice and charter schools, whether it's in Michigan or across the country, is very politicized. Uh, and obviously, there's pros and cons to both. Uh, and a lot of people take a position on that. And so a lot of the research uh, will be either promoting charter schools or against charter schools. So it's really hard to dig into and get some objective data. There are some out there. At the end of the day, I think the bottom line is is pretty clear that um, charter schools have changed how we do things. Uh, when we think about you know what's the outcome or what's the impact, I would say a lot of it is uh, what school leaders and district leaders think about uh, and how we go about the work we do. Uh, rather than having a guaranteed stream of money, like you know, again we used to have in the past, um, now customer satisfaction becomes a huge part. You want to retain students and you want to get more students. Uh, if you think of it again, kind of from that business perspective, the business model. And so that's what we're thinking about as leaders, is how do we make sure we have the funds and the resources to operate and provide the highest quality for our, our students. Um, the, you know, beyond that, there's a whole host of other issues, um, you know, that come into play when we think about uh, low income urban communities. Um, not only was that the, you know, is the, are the economics, I'm going to start over with that one. You know, and that creates a whole host of issues, specifically, you know, with low income and urban communities. When we think about charter schools and choice and competition, uh, not only is it an economic issue, but there's also the issue of educational opportunities. Um, when we think about quality, has the quality improved? It's difficult to determine whether or not charter schools are performing better than traditional schools. Uh, the research shows, by and large, they're the, about the same. Uh, there's a couple you know, phenomenon around that. One is that, you know, this goes back to the research many, many years ago, that, you know, 
although the finances has changed, the schooling is a product of a community, right? You, so you in, in Hemlock, right? You're hiring teachers from the Hemlock community. Your administrators are primarily from the Hemlock community. All your students, obviously, and parents are from the Hemlock community. And so the, the mission, the values, the effort, all that goes into what you do at Hemlock Public Schools is around your community. And so whether there's a charter school in town or not, when currently obviously there isn't, um, the outcomes would be similar because they're similar parents, they're similar students, they're similar teachers, they're similar administrators. And so you take that and you put that in a large urban setting and you're gonna get about the same results. You take that to a, a more rural setting, such as maybe Northern Michigan, and you're going to get similar results. So a lot of the outcomes are going to be similar to what we see uh, from charter schools to traditional schools. The biggest concern, however, is that when we think about the impact um, is the financial impact to traditional public schools. That there's one kind of concept or idea that charter schools are taking students from traditional public schools. Um, now, Right. That's if we use kind of the analogy of you know, kind of the restaurant community or the restaurant field, um, you know, one restaurant doesn't own the customers. Uh, you have a choice of which restaurant you want to go to. But the reality is the same, that if you choose to not go to restaurant A versus restaurant B, that that restaurant's going to feel that impact. And so in this case, the traditional public schools that have kind of you know, that are serving a specific community are known to think of them as having you know, their students. So when students go down the road or to a charter school, uh, that has a direct impact on the larger system of educating students, which creates competition and challenges for a lot of the, the various school districts. Well, it's kind of interesting, um, you know, the whole thought process uh, behind whether it be school choice or charter is the idea that competition improves things. And the ideology that has been in leadership in our state and government during those times, you know, are obviously shifting. You know, it, it's kind of a shifting sand all the time when it comes to that. Uh, you know, thinking about overall school of choice and school, you know, school satisfaction with choice and charter, you know, one of the things, you know, naturally you would think that it drives up, you know, it makes it a better experience for students, for parents, and for everyone involved. You know, I think about, you know, you use the restaurant analogy. And, and I go, if I only have one choice when it comes to restaurants, my level of satisfaction may be fairly low. And the, the level of service and the level of food may be fairly a, a low quality and low grade. But when I have more choices and people are competing for my business, uh, all of a sudden that means the service has to get better, the quality of food has to get better. And in my experience, in turn, is overall better. With school, I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. I, I um, you know, overall have, you know, in my position, we've closed kind of that gap of school of choice. We've retained more students. We've uh, gotten more students. Uh, it have kind of been a winner in recent history. In, when I say a winner, we've balanced the numbers. We've made them work for us. Uh, not like we have a huge windfall. That said, I think that in the end, people not being captive has improved the environment, but also it may fester some of that discontent. Hey, if I don't like it here, I'm just going down the road. Um, you know, where, you know, three decades ago, you couldn't do that. W what is your take on that satisfaction? Do you think it fosters 
uh, you know, dissatisfaction, or do you think it actually improves the overall experience? Well, that was the original intent of schools of choice and charter schools, right? Is that by creating competition, you're going to improve the overall education for students across the state. Uh, Kind of the idea of, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Mm -hmm. In reality, it's hard to prove that out. I would say anecdotally, I think the quality of education, especially in Michigan, has improved holistically. So yes, I do think that competition choice charter schools has overall improved education in Michigan, or at the very least, it's helped create that awareness. Like you were talking about in terms of the restaurant business, like, hey, you know, if I don't get my act together, you know, the restaurant down the street's going to you know, take all my customers and then I'm going to be out of business. And so we have seen pockets of that. Um, we think about like Muskegon Heights uh, as an example, uh, that as a district, just we're losing enough students that it, uh, you know, eventually went into bankruptcy and had to close and another you know, company came, a chartering actually agency came in to take over. But the challenge is that the, you know, the results still aren't great because, you know, as I mentioned before, that a lot of it is a product of the community and the challenges of a community. And so I think for the most part, it's created the awareness, but I think beyond that, we really need to focus on, and I think we're getting much better than we were 30 years ago, right? So back when chartering started in Michigan, we've learned so much. And so as educators, generally, we know more. We're looking at the research. We have better practices. We have better approaches to teaching and learning and operations. We're becoming more efficient. We're becoming more effective. I think we still have a long way to go yet. Um, but in, in the main outcome of, of what we've learned over the last 30 years, I think by and large, districts such as yourself uh, are using what we've learned from either charter schools with innovations or with traditional district with innovations. You've uh, grown and learned as, a, as an administrator leader, and then your faculty and staff have also had development, and they've grown as faculty and as, a, as teachers uh, with teaching and learning. And so overall, I think you've got that bigger dynamic. But a lot of it is really still dependent on the local community and the local district in terms of how they respond to the quality uh, issue or the choice issue. You know, I think that uh, that's a great answer. I, I do think that typically, whether it be charter, private, school of choice, it comes from a satisfaction. I mean, you know, if somebody's not satisfied, they're going to seek other options. Uh, in, in my experience, we've, I've been fortunate to not have to face off against a, a charter uh, in, in that kind of setting. Uh, I know that it's in especially high population density areas. There's choice on every corner uh, that people yeah. have had to, to, de- to deal with. Um, that said, uh, you know, what is the role of charter schools in learning in, in the, the state of Michigan nation, what's that role of, of a charter school? So, well, charters are public schools. So I think that's the first thing we need to remember is that charter schools are public schools. And although there is a, a they look different, right? So the structure operations can be different. Uh, for the most part, by and large, they follow the same rules. Uh, so, you know, state aid act and, and, and all the, the regulations, uh, state regulations through MD and whatnot with a couple, uh, obviously, caveats. Um, the biggest difference, though, is that traditional schools can only contract for um, non-instructional services, non-academic services, where charter schools can contract for anything, including instructional services or everything. And so we think of 
how a charter school is trying to accomplish its goal of teaching and learning uh, from a business mindset, kind of that's the topic of the day. Um, sometimes a board uh, would then contract with a management company, a education company. Like let's say there's, so there's some really big national ones like KIPP academies or green dot schools, um, schools for success. And so these are really high performing charter networks. And so a, a community might want to contract with that company to come in and provide those services. Very similar to a McDonald's or a Costco or whatever it happens to be like, you know, we want that company to come in versus a locally grown mom and pop. Now, there's nothing wrong with mom and pops, uh, whether it's, you know, a local community, you know, starting a charter school or even a, obviously a small community with a traditional district. Um, but the nice thing with some of these, you know, structured systems is that you bring in a consistent level of quality, consistent systems and processes. And so sometimes that will will help. But there's a lot of question around that. There's a lot of question around, you know, is that appropriate? Is it good? Is it bad? Um, because part of that means that your the revenue uh, for that school district, that charter school district, is going to a private company because the majority of those, especially in Michigan, are private management companies. Um, but again, using the kind of the, the competition, you know, analogy, um, if they're providing a high quality product that goes back to the idea of does it matter? Uh, and so the outcomes are really arounding and kind of the idea of learning arounding the approach or the mission that that school takes. And a traditional district uh, is pretty straightforward. You know, most traditional districts in Michigan have been around for you know almost 100 years. And so there's consistency in how you go about teaching and learning, consistency of serving the community, consistency in customer satisfaction. Uh, but that may be good or bad, depending on the overall outcome and quality. With a charter school, uh, with some of these networks, uh, they provide a very specific approach to education, which hopefully, if done well, either uh, over the oversight from the authorizer from the Michigan Department of Education and hopefully the board of education, uh, in this case, board of trustees, will hire or contract with a high quality provider will then provide some really high quality outcomes. This next question is loaded. I'm going to just <laughs> right out of the gate, you know, we, and maybe we should go uh, with all that's going on in our nation uh, to be able to, you know, have a, a dialogue about, you know, something that both of us are very passionate about. Both of us have maybe some opposite views with, um, and yet we can still have an intelligent dialogue. We can still get along. We can still work together. Student achievement. So there's, there's not a lot of uh, difference. You know, you know, we, we have this hope that, uh, you know, that somehow that the education system, I think this is the view and maybe I'm wrong, but somehow the education systems broke, not in my community, but maybe across the state, the nation. And we have this idea that a charter school or a private school could somehow come in and fix that. Student achievement, when it comes to a state national assessment, has shown otherwise. And so uh, in, in that perhaps anecdotal, I'm not going to say according to study X, Y, and Z and X, Y, and Z, you know, but, but it's really clear that student achievement isn't necessarily changed by a charter school. Why is that? And I mean, this is a loaded question right out of the gate. I'm going to tell you, it's a loaded question. 
um, because you know there's some studies to show that that it really doesn't make a difference when it comes to student outcomes. So why is that? Well, you know, in terms of being a loaded question, I think it's a great question. I think it's a it's an important question, one that we have to talk about. Because at the end of the day, like I said, you know, choice and competition was born from the idea that it would improve our field. It would improve the quality of school districts, which would improve the quality and outcomes for students. Because that's what this is all about. We're focused on improving the lives of of our children, and ultimately, then you know, to become successful adults that obviously have the requisite skill sets to be, you know, good employees and and you know, productive. So when we think about essentially our charter schools, the term we use is proving the promise, right? The promise that with increased freedom would be accountability or the ability to operate in this kind of unique format outside of a traditional district that you'd be able to then produce these results. It's hard to really nail that down in terms of have they or how are they? Because again, every charter school is different and every charter school that works within a community is different. So the outcomes are unique to that program or unique to that community. And so when you throw them all together, um, yeah, by and large, they're like traditional public schools. There's lots of studies out there. Credo is one organization by Stanford that does a lot of work on, on uh, statistics uh, and, and um, specifically on student achievement in regards to charter schools compared to traditional districts. And you know, it's based upon, again, the school format. Some are better, some are worse. By and large, they're about the same. So then it goes back to, well, if they're about the same, they're not better than, then why do we have them? That's one question that we keep bringing up. Like, do we need charter schools? So what's the benefit then of charter schools, especially on student achievement? And a lot of it really comes back to um, the idea of, I think there's three parts to that. One is choice, which is that parents want an option. They don't want to just be stuck to, if you will, to their traditional district. If they don't like their district, what are their options? Back in the day, you'd have to actually move, right? Physically move if you want to go to a different school. So that does provide the option for parents to choose a better fit for their child. The second one is really then providing um, a focused approach. Like I can do it differently, right? So Hemlock has a very specific curriculum, specific educational approach. If charter school A moved down the road, they might do it differently. Maybe a Montessori approach. Maybe it would be a more classical education approach. But they'd be able to take a different approach to it, which might fit students' needs differently. Uh, it might not necessarily be that much better academically uh, for every student because all students are different. And again, I mentioned before that you know education outcomes are largely a product of their community. Um, but it's different. And so that provides families with an opportunity to, to get a, a program that better meets their needs or what they would like to see. But that's really then that last one, which is the main difference between traditional public schools and charter schools, especially it comes down to the academic side, is that it's a very different culture. It's a very different approach. Um, a traditional district is a one size fits all where charter schools are more like boutique programs, where they have a very specific identity, uh, who they wanna be, how they wanna operate, but even more importantly, the culture of that organization. So one of the schools I was uh, the director at, uh, Northern Michigan, was an art-infused program. So we used the arts curriculum in everything we did. We uh, tied uh, visual arts to providing outcomes for students within the math, right? So we think of charts and graphs, or we look at uh, maybe learning math, we would do something around maybe design uh, or architecture, right? Of a building and, and measurement, maybe a lot of you know, 
you know, ge geometric approaches in terms of the math approach. Um, and students would be able to sing songs maybe when it was in language arts class to be able to provide a connection between the arts and the academics. And so a lot of it is, I think, tailoring the approach of how you teach uh, and the concepts that you teach. Um, PLCs are become a really big thing lately, right? The project-based learning, uh, th and that can be charter school and or traditional, but I think charter schools open the door for that, for us to think differently, because again, prior to mid 1990s, pretty much district districts operated very similarly. Where now we've had a tremendous amount of innovations over the years that not just charter schools have adopted, but also traditional public schools have adopted as well. Very solid answer. You know, one of the things I, I almost was like, well, that's a pretty expensive way to get, uh, you know, an improvement. But at the end of the day, you know, there is a niche, kind of like you said, a boutique that that charter schools might fill. I, again, I've been fortunate to not have to compete or lose revenue to a charter school directly. Oh, I think then, you do just fine, Don. You yeah. guys are doing a really good job at Hemlock. <laughs> well, you you still you still have to you know you're going to have some bleed off. So this is my favorite question: If you were king or queen for the day, how would you structure schools? What would what would be different in the state of Michigan, the nation? You know, how would you do things differently? Yeah, that's that's a difficult question and difficult thing to to answer. Um, you know, schools are one of the most, if not the most, complex and difficult types of organizations that exist. Um, what are the industries mandated to serve 100% of the population with variable costs, high stakes accountability, erroneous regulations, all with fixed resources, right? It's truly a, a Herculean task, especially now you throw in COVID, right? And all the challenges of virtual education, all that that's come about. Um, that's why schools essentially, we talk about even charter schools and choice and whatnot, you know, essentially the same as they were, you know, almost 60, 70 years ago, you know, even with, with charter schools and the, the freedom to operate any way essentially that they would like to, they're kind of structured very similar to traditional public schools. Uh, and that's primarily because of the funding. So in, I think to restructure, you probably have to look at different ways of funding. Um, but um, also I think a lot of it comes down to uh, really what innovations uh, have really been produced, and uh, how can we capitalize on those those innovations specifically? So I, I think the cheap answer is, you know, to wipe the slate clean and start over with a redesign of public education. Uh, tweaking at the fringes really hasn't helped significantly. Like I said, there's so many constraints, whether it's legacy costs or legacy um, elements to the work that we do. Uh, there's some really big, significant challenges that uh, are really hard to overcome in the current system. Um, so what would that look like? Um, I kind of, you know, it's very theoretical, right? It's a, it's an academic exercise, but a lot of it would be, um, looking at the funding system specifically starting there. Uh, how do we fund schools? Uh, how do we make sure that schools are funded ac ac academically, but also, um, more equitably. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest thing. When we look at the outcomes of education, a lot of the students are receiving a really good quality education, traditional, even charter. Uh, they're receiving, by and large, a, a good quality education. But not all students are. So I think that's really, if I had to say, is you know, what would I change? And, and if we start over the financial perspective or the operational perspective, a lot of it would be is to make sure that we have streams of revenue and supports and resources to support the neediest students. 
that we really focus on making sure that all students are receiving a quality education. I think a lot of students get kind of, you know, left behind or, you know, it, kind of in the mix in the, in the challenge of educating, you know, a lot of students, right? We, we educate millions of students a day uh, with it across Michigan. And how do we do that efficiently, effectively? How do we do that? That's not a factory model approach, right? Where it's not focused on inputs, but it's focused on, on really the experience of all of our students. And a lot of that, I think, comes down to adequate funding and make sure that all schools and all students are receiving the funding they need to operate. But I also think it puts, um, you know, the approach that I would do, it would put more um, focus on a shared kind of learning environment among educators, among schools, and also with parents, uh, that it truly would be a, a redesign that would allow us to no longer be kind of a, a one-off where one teacher serves 25, 35 students in kind of an isolation, but more of a team approach where you've got a team of individuals working together to solve the problems of, of how to help the students specifically within either that subject or that grade band. And I think a lot of it also would be probably uh, looking at the design of of doing away with grade bands. Uh, I think that's another element that we're trying to look at where we no longer focus on, you know, all kids at one place because they're not. They're all unique learners and they all develop at different rates. Just because you're seven doesn't mean that you need to know that content the same day as somebody else who's seven. Uh, kids learn at different rates. We know that about you know, child development and student learning. Uh, the other part of that I think would be is in terms of really focusing on the whole child. I think we're starting to see a lot of movement and research moving forward to look at the environment of our schools, the culture, the climate, uh, student services in regards to uh, well-being of our students. I talked before about kind of the, the neediest of our students, whether it's historically disadvantaged students, students with mental needs, mental health needs, um, social emotional learning, uh, really focusing now on the behavioral element of learning. Uh, if a child is not ready to learn, you can spend you know all your time and effort to try to you know you know fill the the bucket so to speak. Uh, so how do we make sure that our children are ready to learn? Their students have the prerequisites for uh, the learning, whether it's the topic or whether it's just the activity. Uh, so a lot of it, what I think is rather than a filling of a bucket, it's the lighting of a fire, right? How do we motivate them, encourage them, and provide a really supportive environment? Now again. A lot of that's already happening, but I don't think it's happening across the board. So I would say it's more or less, say, uh, a redesign to make sure that it's happening where it needs to be, where uh, you know the, the the schools that are struggling to meet the needs of the students, uh, the teachers that are overworked or they have 45 students in a classroom, you know, they don't have, the textbooks are 15 years old. They don't have the resources they need. Uh, I think that's a problem. And I think those are the things that might be able to, um, fix that or at least help help address that if you look holistically across our system uh, and really make sure that those elements are addressed. Great answer. What I heard there was examine funding, other resources, and, and I want to add to that is opportunity. What I find is, you know, people want to talk about equity and fairness and in really, you know, in our state, due to uh, funding systems, you know, we might have schools that are at the base, but then because of title and federal funding, they're getting significantly more, more dollars. But where the, the problem lies is the equity of opportunity. And so, you know, the, there's an actual an inequity of distribution of funds 
in kind of in favor of social disadvantaged uh, students, which is is okay and good. It, it's something we need to look at and do. But then there's a there's also a disproportionate disadvantage when it comes to the opportunity of learning. And I don't know if it's these dollars need to be more stringently focused or uh, or such, but to make sure that students that are socially disadvantaged also have those rich opportunities, whether it be in the classroom, on the, the fields, you know, robotics, STEM, technology. I mean, I could go on and on and on um, that, you know, those opportunities need to be protected for kids. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and one of the challenges, right, is you want enough oversight so there's accountability, but you don't want overregulation because that creates more bottlenecks and more administrative oh. costs. And so I, I think a lot of it is making sure that there's enough oversight to hire really competent, you know, individuals and making sure that the 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 systems that are in place are are serving students the best possible ways. So last thing, any parting words for our audience? I mean, somebody's tuning in to listen to this. You know, what would you have to say to them? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, I think it's great if, if they are listening because these are important topics as we think about, you know, providing quality education for our communities uh, and the various unique ways that we have to do that today. Um, I think a lot of it goes down to, you know, be engaged, right? Continue to be part of the conversation. I think too often most of the decisions are happening in vacuums. They're happening, you know, in Lansing or in DC, Washington DC, uh, out of the context of what's really happening on the ground, right? In the districts, in the classrooms with students. And so I think the more engaged parents are, students are, teachers and administrators even, uh, I think the more we can have a, a conversation about what do we really need to meet the needs of our students? Uh, where are the, the highest need students? Uh, what are the challenges that we're seeing, you know, specifically day to day uh, with the frontline workers, right, of, of education? We think about, you know, healthcare workers right now because of COVID and the frontline workers and what do they need? We're hyper-focused on that. But in education, it doesn't seem like we've ever been there. Uh, in fact, we're blaming the teachers, right? We're blaming schools for not doing as much or doing more. But the reality is, you know, we've been frontline workers for <laughs> decades, you know, the challenges of, of dealing with students. You know, needs and family needs and and helping children become, you know, amazing human beings in that process. And teachers are, are you know, miracle workers in what they do every day. And so how do we make sure that they're part of that conversation, that they're engaged in the conversation? But it's not just, you know, putting the time and effort into it, but it's also we've got to talk with legislators to make sure that they're being listened to, that they're providing opportunities to actually help change decision making to make sure that uh, the decisions that are happening in Lansing and Washington are truly filtering down into action at the school district. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that we can focus on and uh, and help improve our schools, that there's a system to make sure that those changes and the decisions do filter into direct impact and change. Well, thank you so much for being part of this conversation today, Dr. Jenkins, and being part of Economics of Learning. Have a wonderful day, and uh, thank you for tuning in. Thanks, Don. I appreciate it.